But the family kept on saying to the doctor, but doctor, the patient's still moving. The doctor went back a total of three times and told the family that the movement would stop as soon as the drugs were off. Until the other attorney is asked the question, don't answer it. You know, don't don't assume certain things are kind of come out of their mouth because they aren't. Hey, Rick Picotta, Greg Henry on the line for you, the uh, September 2019 issue of Risk Management Monthly. Greg is in Michigan. I'm in Los Angeles. But, Greg, hi. Are you okay? I'm okay. And, Rick, uh, uh, it was great seeing you and your wife back in uh, Michigan um, earlier in, in the summer. And uh, lots of fun. Uh, before we get going, uh, it is worthwhile to say that uh, Rick's sister, Jerry, who's been with this organization forever, uh, passed away uh, in this past month. And uh, my best to the entire uh, family, uh, Dominus Fobiscu. Greg, I appreciate your mentioning uh, Jerry. Um, I think sometimes about you know giving her a call on Skype. She was always on Skype and at the office and that's not going to happen anymore. My sister was a really, really, really important part of emergency medical abstracts, the courses, everything that we do. <clears throat> she was our writer, our editor. She wrote 15,000 abstracts at least, at least more than, I think more than, substantially more than that. And we were, you know, we were raised together. She was a couple of years younger than me and she got dealt a terribly bad card. She retired at the end of it. April, May 15th, was diagnosed with a brain tumor and died three and a half months later. No retirement, no traveling, no grandchildren time, no frickin' nothing. Um, yeah, so so have a, have a good time, enjoy your life. And um, she, she was one who always took an interest in the faculty and what we were doing, and uh, she will be greatly missed by all of us. That's true. And um, actually, what, on a very specific basis, Jerry used to write up the notes from this thing every month. Uh, and it and it wasn't an easy task, especially with Greg on the line, trying to <laughs> come up with the notes that she did it would take her a, a, a solid day at least to do this. And now yours truly is writing the notes. Which yes. Is, which is this, not good. The, but Yeah, this anyway. is not good. All right, let's get on with this September issue. I want to point out something which uh, needs to be looked at by everyone, and that is within the past month, uh, the California uh, state's attorney general arrested Dr. Thomas uh, Keller, 72-year-old man, and he was not only being followed for distribution of drugs and usual overprescribing, that sort of thing, but this is the first time in the history of the state of California that because five of these people died, he brought second-degree murder, felony murder, against Thomas Keller. Uh, he, uh, he is letting the federal case which has to do with narcotics distribution play out. But on a separate uh, issue, separate court hearings, 
He's going after him for five counts of second-degree murder. Uh, I think that everybody ought to take a deep breath who writes prescriptions and say, hmm, if it happens in California, it'll be here in Michigan in a couple of years, uh, except for homelessness, because it's still too damn cold here in Michigan for for homeless people. But uh, I thought it was interesting that the state's attorney general wouldn't just let the federal case go ahead. He uh, he brought murder charges, and I think they set his bail because he'd done quite well distributing drugs at $12 million. You so know, uh, be aware. There, there was a, I'm surprised that that would be viewed as the first time that that occurred. There was a case in Orange County here where a physician was notorious for giving out drugs, and uh, kids from other states would come in to get drugs from this guy. Actually, it was a girl, lady. And uh, in particular, some uh, students from ASU, there was a pipeline to Arizona State University, and there were a number of deaths associated with that. And that physician was also put in prison for a criminal offense. And uh, that was, my understanding, the first time that this has ever happened in California. So we have a little uh, fact-checking to do here. But the yes, but these these doctors are egregious. These are right. pill, these are pill mills. And and if anything, emergency medicine is, I'm afraid, swinging a little bit to the uh, wrong side of this. But Greg, I want to tell you about a really interesting paper. It's a kind of a sister paper to a paper that we did about six or nine months ago. It was put together by the USAC's people where they looked at 10 million visits and how many lawsuits were associated with those 10 million visits, which was, I believe, 98. And then they looked at how many of those lawsuits paid out money, which was 16. So it gets 16 out of 10 million. And I can't tell you how important this paper is, I think, because it basically says well, this boogeyman about lawsuits is just grossly over, uh, overhyped and that we keep beating our chest about lawsuits. And that's why we have the defense of medicine. And the fact of the matter is that lawsuits have gone away, you know, about a decade ago. The number has dropped like a stone. And um, yet we're still, oh, we're going to get sued, you know. And, and thanks to that USAC paper, yeah, they have a decent, I guess, risk management program. But they brought on so many other groups that I think that that really probably dilutes it in terms of uh, how effective it can be. But that was their first paper. Now their second paper. Greg, you want to say anything about that first paper? Well, no, I, I would agree with you, Rick, that um, uh, it's important to realize that part of the loss is not just the money you spend um, that you have to pay out. That's, the, uh, that's what you uh, pay to the plaintiff. But it did cost you some money to try those cases, to pay your attorneys, these sorts of things. But I will agree with you that to some extent – in most regions of the United States, the problem of malpractice is overstated. Well, that's that. Yeah, I think that's a very fair and conservative statement because I think that the most of us is just—it's been 
used as the standard for why you overorder, why you overtest uh, for 30 or 40 years now, and it just kind of like it just won't die. Um, right. If There is no good reason for overtesting. If it was to reduce lawsuits, there's no proof that that actually works. Well, the and sec- so this puts, it to, this puts that to bed. Yeah, you got it. Well, then they did a second paper, and this is done by the lead author on this paper is by Justin Carlson. He is a USAC's doctor in the uh, Pittsburgh area. And he's I, I I should I'm going to mangle his title, but he's got something to do with education and risk management for the entire uh, USAC's uh, organization. In any case, they did this paper. It's in the Annals of Emergency Medicine. It is in press, which means it hasn't been assigned to an issue yet, as far as I can t- determine. But it is clearly 2019. It's called Emergency Physician Practice Changes after being named in a malpractice suit, which is great. Now, they went back and looked at what happened to these doctors um, in terms of their behavior. They uh, they looked at 58. They had, no, no, they had, at the time that this was done, there were 59 EDs in, their, in 11 states that they had. They looked at over the period 2010 to 2015, and they had 65 doctors that they looked at. It was basically a before and after kind of thing. And they also looked at 140 match controls, comparing those six, uh, to, to compare the 65 doctors. Now, what would you think it would have happened? These things, you would have thought that these doctors who are sued would become testing machines. Yeah, <laughs> you'd think you'd think that. By God, I'm going to do anything for this uh, not to happen again, <laughs> and actually not not to let the cat out of the bag. But it didn't do anything. Their behaviors remained exactly the same. Well, in some ways, it did. No significant yeah. changes in measures of care intensity. I guess that means testing yes. or speed. Uh, I'm going to be kind of like the devil's advocate here and say, based on what I see doctors doing. It's impossible to order any more tests than they're already ordering. <laughs> how could you? That's a cynical view, Rick. And I suppose you're also going to say, uh, how, how could you make them go any faster? They've been so slow for so long. So, so we can we can say that those two factors didn't seem to change much. Yeah, Justin, I got to say that. I mean, you know, if Jerry Hoffman were re- reviewing this paper, that is exactly what he would say. But in any case, but one thing did change. Immediately, their press granny scores. They said, I better start being nice to patients. Now, I didn't read it in detail enough to see where these guys were on the spectrum. Were were they really bad to begin with? And then they improved. But they improved like the day after they got named. They they were nicer to the patients, which I think is great. Measurable percentiles different. I mean, it it wasn't just it was one or this was a significant change in uh, in uh, scores of the people who came to see them. Um, The improvement in how they treated patients was greatest in the 46 failure to diagnose claims, Uh, which which I think you kind of you know, would have intuited is the case. Um, and that's really where most of the lawsuits are, is failure to diagnose. We'll get into that a little bit later. Uh, Greg, you have an interesting paper as well yeah. coming up here. Uh, we do. It's uh, This is entitled, The Effect of Shared Decision-Making 
on a patient's likelihood of filing a complaint or a lawsuit. Now, understand those are different things. Because someone has filed a complaint does not mean they're going to sue you. But this is a measure of people willing to take some action about what's going on. This is in the 2019 issue of uh, Annals of Emergency Medicine, and uh, Schoenfeld is the uh, lead author in this. What they did is looked at randomized controlled uh, simulation experiment, conducted a survey using clinical vignettes featuring no shared decision-making, then brief shared decision-making, and finally, a thorough shared decision-making. Now, I realize that that's very difficult to determine these three groups. It's not simple. Uh, What is extensive, what isn't. But uh, the participants were adults recruited through an online uh, platform, uh, and for uh, 804 folks were randomized to hear the same clinical vignette that had an adverse outcome. Participants uh, exposed to shared decision-making, either some or extensive, were 80% less likely to report that they would uh, report a a complaint or file a lawsuit. 80%, that's pretty good. And for those exposed to no shared decision-making, whoa, there was a lot of people willing to uh, to complain or uh, bring an action on those. So the participants ex- exposed to either some shared level or a high level seemed to feel that that went a long way in keeping the complaints down and the lawsuits to a minimum. You know, they also had higher trust in the doctor. They rated physicians more highly when they did some shared decision-making. And the nicest part about this study is that some shared decision-making was the same as uh, a lot. I can, a lot is like too much of like enough doctor. I, you know, I, I, I don't want to hear all the statistics and the confidence <laughs> intervals on why you're going to do this or that kind of thing. Just kind of give me a general idea. You know, this is a great example, however, where you can take numbers and really manipulate them. An 80% reduction, holy smokes. But what was the real absolute difference? The absolute, right. Yeah, well, 40% would have complained, said they would complain uh, without the shared decision-making versus 11 or 12% who had the mild or intensive shared decision-making. So, yeah, I, I think that this this study has a lot of, conceptual problems because it's a theoretical kind of thing. But the magnitude of the differences in terms of who's going to complain and who wasn't is really substantial. And this does clearly support, I think, and I think it's only fair to patients that they partake or be aware of how some of the decisions that are being made around them are taking place and if they want to get their two cents in there. Anything further? We're going to go on to the next paper. Yeah, we're almost, got, we're almost to, done our papers here. Well, one thing that we got to talk about is uh, the whole concept of shared decision-making. I think most of us have been doing some 
form of shared decision making since the day we started practice, the day we started in med school. So whenever you see a shared decision making paper, the actual criteria for deciding who did quote unquote shared decision making is not simple. I think this is this is always questionable science, Rick. But I like I like the ideas. So it's it's another paper where if you like the outcome, you're going to talk about the paper. Yes, the paper of course. Then I like the outcome here. Uh, next paper. This is entitled "Boarding Psychiatric Patients in Emergency Rooms." One court says no more. This was written by uh, Paul Applebaum, who's a JD in the journal called Psychiatric Services in July 2015. Yes, I know, I know. We we it's all we, we okay. So this uh, paper details how the Supreme Court of the state of Washington ruled that its Involuntary Treatment Act, which is the which is a specific act in Washington, was being violated by the prolonged holding of patients in the emergency department. Wouldn't you love to have you know the states come in and say you can't hold these patients? In this case, we're talking about psychiatric patients, but in general, any patients. Yeah, uh, Rick. Rick, the problem with that is. A court can say anything it wants. Why? Because they go home at five o'clock. They're not, <laughs> they don't give you a tool or a mechanism to completely solve the problem. Oh, you're right. They just tell you, fix it. The, the court it. ruled it's that it. the uh, process of holding these psychiatric patients in the emergency department for prolonged periods uh, was, was to stop, and they gave them 120 days to fix the problem. Actually, they initially gave them something like 10 days, and the, yeah. and the state went back and said, come on, give us a break here now. The governor immediately authorized $30 million to create additional bed capacity and proposed another $37 million in the next fiscal budget. Some say, however, that, as you mentioned, no real differences were appreciated. The ruling is unlikely to be much of a precedent in that the basis of the uh, rule was a state law that appeared to be violated. However, in this article, they do talk about what is called the Alameda model, which is based out of Oakland, which is uh, where they have a regional psychiatric center that, that was developed up in Oakland in which patients were taken to the psychiatric center, uh, transferred for their further evaluations. So they came in the emergency department, and if they were medically cleared, they went to the psychiatric center the model resulted in a lot less admissions in that many people who were able to be uh, stabilized at the emergency psychiatric facility uh, were able to be discharged without admission. It was kind of interesting because I think a lot of the emergency physicians felt these people needed to be admitted to the hospital, maybe against their will kind of thing. When they went to these psychiatric centers and you know things kind of settled down, they ultimately determined that a lot of these people could go home uh, with some support, you know, whatever medications or those kinds of things when they just invested a little bit more time in them well, rather than I, locking them up. I think what we have to look at here, Rick, is the fact that whenever you have a second center, there's going to be a time delay of some kind. These people, whether we like it or not, were under further uh, hold or observation for some period of time to go to the second psychiatric center. 
The second thing is almost all sight disease has a curve. It changes with time. So now they've gone to the second center. Now they've gotten lunch. Now they've gotten whatever they have. What we're saying here is we don't know that a psychiatric center actually changes the patient, but it changed admission. And one thing is most of the psych center docs, I'm sure, are so used to seeing psych patients, they feel more comfortable with letting them out the door. The default position in a lot of emergency departments is, I don't know, they're sort of crazy. Maybe we ought to stick them in. Well, the psych center only deals with crazy. And so they, they ask other questions. Are you dangerous? Are you dangerous to sell for others? Because being crazy is not the only criteria for admission to the hospital. I promise you that. Well, this idea of a center, a regional center, where you can take people, uh, that would, you know, Lord, the emergency departments would support that in a heartbeat. And it was kind of like, well, in L.A. County, that would be terrific if we could do something like that. But you got to understand, when we talk about Alameda or we talk about L.A. County, we're talking about big masses of people who have psychiatric disease. If you're talking about... about uh, uh, Wyoming, if you're talking about Oklahoma, I mean, it, it's got to be a, a, a regional uh, center in an urban center. Mm -hmm. uh, yes, okay. Yeah, you just rode through Michigan. Most of upper Michigan has what in it? Trees. Nobody. Trees. It, it it's got trees. a lot of trees. Trees and lakes, <laughs> you know. And in fact, I, I looked up for you the fact that to be a lake in Michigan you have to have a surface area of greater than uh, six acres or something. Um, th this is, uh, we've got a lot of that stuff. You can't have a regional center at every small hospital or uh, medium-sized center in America. California is the, is the most populous state now. You can have regional centers, uh, Keokuk, Iowa can't do that, Rick. Well, yeah, but, you know, we're also pissed off because we only get two senators and Wyoming gets two. Yes, that's, that's, exactly. That's really, <laughs> all right, now moving on. Uh, I found this article by um, Mike Silverman in, in EP Monthly. And, you know, about two or three months ago, that we answered a some fellow sent us a form that was being proposed in their area, which would allowed the police to uh, basically mandate the physicians do searches of people for contraband. And um, so I think the same fellow wrote to EP Monthly and wanted a second opinion for crying out loud. It's hard to yeah, believe yeah. that the, ours wasn't good enough. So let me tell you what, what Mike Silverman had to say. Uh, this is this same issue. You have a prisoner brought in. And uh, the police want you to go either go into their upper or lower GI tract to find uh, uh, medications. And, you know, our advice was just don't do it. Go to jail. It'll be better than the shift that you're on. Right, that, exactly. <laughs> but, but Mike was obviously more nuanced. Uh, he said, contact your hospital risk manager 
have them develop an algorithm of what you would, should do. Well, it's kind of like if you contact the hospital risk manager at 10 o'clock at night, they're going to be a really big help on something like this. And so the, Mike has some, says he's gone through it a lot, and, and there's some interesting things here that we didn't bring out that I think we should uh, we do now. Warrants are not binding on the public. They authorize the police to search your house, but it doesn't, invi- it doesn't authorize a citizen like you, the wor- doctor working in the emergency department, doesn't authorize you to do anything. You don't work for the government for crying out loud. Makes a lot of sense. Um, and the current, <clears throat> the current Supreme Court decisions, which dealt with things like putting down an NG tube, doing things like that, found that an, uh, a, an invasion of personal privacy. If they keep you in the jail and two days later you poop out bags of cocaine or something like that, that's okay. But for you to go up in there to get that when the patient is not at some risk from this uh, has not been, is not universally viewed as okay. Invasion of the body is is a very careful thing. Now, the Supreme Court has said three times that taking of blood is a usual and customary medical procedure. But that's not the same as going down inside somebody with an NG tube, which does carry with it at least some risk, uh, or going up their butt with a, with a, uh, with a, a scope looking for contraband. Uh, I would be very careful of those things. Well, the issue here is that these people are not consenting. If you have a consenting yes. person, so obviously you have to tell them, listen, if you've got drugs in you and these drugs get leaked out from whatever container you had them in, they could kill you. And that you need to lay out there. But if they're refusing uh, that, you ought to just stay away. And it, frankly, it doesn't matter what piece of paper is handed to you. It, Judge Kavanaugh could sign the piece of paper to you, and it doesn't matter. Do it. Don't uh, go to jail. Go to jail. You know, Chuck Pilcher in, in 2016 uh, looked and see if he could find any evidence of cases against doctors in this sin- setting. Uh, he said. He could find no evidence of a lawsuit or other sanctions against a physician refusing to perform a body cavity search on a non-consenting patient when presented with a valid search warrant. You know, just don't do it. Um, I I think we can't emphasize that enough. They can't force you to do that. And um, uh, you you could pay a price for this. Do not. Do not do this. He uh, also suggested that your risk management person check out any state statutes that may relate to, to this. Some, in some cases, they're, you're given like protection from doing it. I would still not do it. I don't care whether the state gives me protection from it because you are uh, you are committing assault and battery. The patient says no, and you're doing it. And um, what about blood draw? You know. If a, if a patient is going to withdraw or in any way resist, no way, no way. And if, frankly, if the patient says, no, I don't want you to do it, and you're going to say, well, are you going to resist if I draw blood? He said, no, I'm not going to resist, but I don't want you to do it. I wouldn't do it. Let him take him to down to the jail clinic and do all of it down there. You are not the agent of the state in these cases. You are 
supposed to be the agent of this patient. True enough. Um, I got a thing from Mike Ritter uh, yesterday that I wanted to include here. Remember we did a case about, I guess it was last month, of about a doctor who uh, ha had a resuscitation, I think it was an MI patient, and bottom line is it was thought that the uh, MI patient was uh, dead. But the family kept on saying to the doctor, but doctor, the patient's still moving. And the doctor went back a total of three times to look at his patient and, and told the family that the movement would stop as soon as the drugs were off. <laughs> what what drug is it that yes. makes dead people move, Rick? I'm not sure that's that actually exists. But now let's wait a second. All of us have had the experience of running a code and the nurses coming back and say, "You know what? He's moving." Or he's not completely dead. This sounds like uh, the Princess Bride. Is he really dead? He's not completely dead. Uh, we've, all, you know, we've all worked in hospitals where this kind of thing has happened. So, Rick, what should we do? Well, wait this? a minute here. Well, what I wanted to do is Mike uh, sent three other cases of people who were pronounced dead erroneously. And we want to distinguish this from the Lazarus syndrome. Right. The Lazarus syndrome is from the Bible when um, Lazarus was uh, brought back to life by Jesus after being dead for four days. Well, but the Lazarus syndrome is really applied to people who have a cardiopulmonary arrest, who have CPR done, and they appear to be dead. And then 10 minutes later, their, their, their heart starts again and... They're circulating again, and they're starting to breathe again kind of thing. So there have been 38 cases reported of the Lazarus syndrome since uh, 1982 when it was first described. However, um, it, this article that Mike sent us basically makes it clear that these cases have to be grossly underreported because who wants to tell you about the case where they, for, they really made a mistake and said somebody was dead when they weren't. I mean, there's the legal liability, or you, you'd be the laughing stock of the medical staff. You know, you couldn't eat doc, lunch in the doctor's dining room anymore. It, it would. So, so that's that. That's the first one uh, uh, case was a car crash victim in uh, South Africa, and when the car rolled over a whole bunch of times, this was a horrendous accident. And the paramedics came, and they pronounced the person dead at the scene, and they were sent directly to a morgue there. That's the way they do it. Uh, in the morgue, the technicians were heard, uh, heard breathing coming from the morgue refrigerator four hours later. Uh, that's not an example of the Lazarus syndrome. This is an example of an incorrect diagnosis. Diagnosis, right. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. The, the ambulance crew on being told of the situation were, quote, unquote, Absolutely devastated. <laughs> yes, I, I would think I, so. I would think so. There was uh, a, I would I would point out though that this is South Africa where you're you tend to be warmer than you are here in Michigan. We understand here in Michigan and in the winter, you can have some old lady with hypothyroidism whose uh, whose house is now at uh, forty degrees 
And uh, it's hard to know if they're dead or not. And certainly we know that in drowning cases, cold water, uh, freshwater drowning cases, you can have the heart in, in, in some uh, form of suspended animation for a period of time. So at least if you're going to call them dead, uh, make sure you've checked them. Make sure that they're, 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 they've been warmed up to room temperature and don't uh, just don't go ahead and uh, call them dead until you're well, pretty sure. You guys call it hibernation up there. Yes, we do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All of our bears, you know, are at, uh, you know, six degrees uh, uh, or, or six beats a minute heartbeat when they're har- hibernating. Uh, two quickies. Uh, one of the people was a prisoner in northern Spain who was declared dead by three different doctors, but was later found snoring on the autopsy table. Good thing to notice that before you begin the autopsy. And that in 2014, a 91-year-old woman in Poland was declared dead and spent 11 hours in a mortuary before staff discovered her body bag moving and found her alive. Oh, my God. I I mean, this sounds like your worst nightmare to wake up and being in one of those coolers. It would not be a pleasant The worst worst nightmare is for the physician to have pronounced those people dead. Um, And I I guess you got to be careful. Uh, You have a list of things that, uh, 10 things that you need to know when doing a deposition or something like that. Help me out here. Yes. Well, uh, Rick, we've done uh, we've done some other things uh, like this in the past with other aspects. Here's a here's a list they asked me to put together about someone who is going to be deposed. Uh, The lawyer wanted me to go through with this uh, doctor and give them a list. And so I thought I would share that list and we'll make a few comments about it. But the but there are things that that a, a doctor who has never been deposed needs to know. Uh, funny, after this has happened once or twice, you've been called to court. You learn a lot in those early um, uh, interactions with the system. Here's here's just a list of the ten things they ought to keep in mind. Number one, take it seriously. This is a legal process, and uh, you should look and act as you're going to in court. Uh, although the judge isn't sitting there, this is an adversarial process. And so let the other side know what you're going to look like, sound like, if this does have to go to court. And it does make a difference. The, the trial is a show. And if they know that you're a good witness, a good-looking witness, and you know how to behave, they have to think about it while they're, well, uh, whether they're going to take this case to trial. Uh, second, be civil, you know, shake hands, but not cordial and not overly talkative. Loose lips sink ships. Be very careful in front of the other side's attorney carrying on casual conversation with your attorney or with other people in the uh, uh, who are around when the deposition is taken. Everything you say can come back to haunt you. So again, civil, but not cordial. 
Third is listen to the question being asked. All of us, particularly uh, people who are fairly bright, tend to anticipate what someone is saying to us. We complete the sentence in our head. We begin to answer before we need to. This is not necessarily a rapid back and forth thing, which is listen to the question, understand that you can take your time in answering, and that everybody wants you, when you go on record, to be correct. So listen to the question and and know what points you want to get across. Be, don't be the yes and no nerd. You don't have to end things with yes, no. I mean, you can, you can carry on a little more than that. But don't be verbose. And until the, until the other attorney is asked the question, don't answer it. You know, don't, don't assume certain things are kind of come out of their mouth because they aren't necessarily. Um, uh, fourth point is don't volunteer your own thoughts or ideas about the situation. They ask a question, you answer the question. But you should not be running on with your own theories of the case, uh, what where the patient went, what they did, all that sort of thing. This should be straightforward talk. Uh, question, answer, question, answer. Number five, avoid pointing the finger at another doctor or anyone else in the case. Remember, we always talk on this show about res ipsa loquitur, the thing speaks for itself. Let somebody else who's been, uh, who's been sued or a part of the case do their own defense work. Don't be pointing fingers. It's unnecessary because when you've pointed your finger at someone, what do you think that they're not tempted to do is point their finger back at you? Stay out of name calling. Uh, oh, if the radiologist had only done this, if the surgeon had only done that, you know what? That, that's not being asked. You're a fact witness, not an opinion witness. And the difference there is huge. You stick to the facts that have to do with you and don't be pointing a casual finger at anyone else. Uh, any comments about that, Rick? No, you're. I, I I fully agree on all of the things that you mentioned. Listen, nobody has more experience at this than you, Greg. In terms of right, you, exactly. you've been dep- deposed so many times, it's like you should know how to do this. Right, right. They 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 rent me. They rent me space there in the courthouse. Uh, number six is provide clarity, but don't fight with the other counsel. Don't argue. You're being asked for your factual recount of things. They they spend time learning how to get on your nerves, that sort of thing. But if you feel you're now fighting with the opposite counsel, let your attorney do that. See, your attorney can call them down. They can do this or that. You don't have to carry on that sort of nitpicky fighting. Let your lawyer do that. That's what they're for. 
Number seven, don't allow either the other side or yourself to get down into personal insults. This is a legal process. When you start getting tempted to, uh, to uh, interject profanity, make comments about their mother, that sort of thing, don't do it. Uh, if you feel that you're getting at that level where your anger level is rising and you're not going to be able to control your temper, take a break. You're allowed to ask for 10 minutes to go to the bathroom. You're allowed to do anything like that. But this personal insults, if you don't think they aren't going to read that back to the jury, you've made a huge mistake because the plaintiff's counsel can use that. Deposition can be used as as a backup to what went on. They could always go back to the deposition and say, doctor, don't you remember when you said this or that or something like this? It's impeachment material. So if you get into court and start lying, they've got you on record. But they can also illustrate to the jury what your attitude was and the way you handled it. Believe me, they will read into anything on those pages, anything they want to influence a jury about what went on. Um, number eight, don't allow casual rephrasing of your testimony. So when says so when an attorney says to you, well, doctor, what you're saying is, the answer to that is, what I'm saying is what I said. It speaks for itself. Let's read that paragraph or that sentence back. But don't th let them casually rephrase what you've said. It is what it is. If he'd like to ask the question again, he has a right to do that. Also be very careful with, are you still beating your wife questions? So if, if they were casually ask you, so are you still beating your wife? That's not a yes or no question. Uh, you may have never beaten your wife. Uh, you may still be beating your wife. But the point is the implication of the question itself carries its own damaging report with it. Um, there's nothing worse than the innuendo uh, that, that to somehow other people listening say you were involved in something wrong. If you believe that they are misphrasing or rephrasing your testimony incompletely, well, first of all, your attorney should be objecting, but you should understand what the, what the psychological game is uh, playing pay, uh, being played. Uh, number nine, read the eyes and listen to the words of your attorney. Attorneys are transmitting to you every second the dep is going on. When they object to something, they're interrupting your speech for a reason. They may have nothing to object to, but they're sending you a message that, hey, you're going in the wrong direction. It's a, it's a fundamental skill to read what your attorney means in the various actions and advice he gives. 
An objection is not just an objection. It's marking the chart. It's letting them know when they review the deposition where there could be a problem. So listen carefully to what the attorney is saying. Uh, and the last one is let the lawyers finish fighting before you start talking. In virtually every deposition I have given, and I gave well over a thousand of them, uh, you had people who would argue about some point. I let the lawyers finish arguing with each other before I proceed. In fact, the, one of the attorneys will usually say, okay, we've, we've put that on the record. Now, doctor, back to the question. But don't jump in in the middle of the two attorneys uh, having at each other, because basically they're marking the chart as well. Uh, and what you should be concentrating on is the question, not their comments. Lawyers' comments are not evidence, never have been. Lawyers' comments are for the other lawyer or for a judge who may be looking at the transcript. You don't have to participate uh, in, that, in that sort of experience. This is for the appellate court. This is for the appeal. This is for all kinds of things, but it's not necessarily for you to respond. It is not what the jury will hear. And uh, basically, uh, it, it is the, the trash on the side, which if you get involved with it, can cause yourself a lot of grief for no reason. Um, fact opinions and, and um, opinion opinions are completely different. Facts talk about what we know to be. Opinion is, this is what other types of experts will say, or people who've been given the position as an expert witness. You're almost never in that position. You deal with the facts, not what may have been, could have been, might be done, what is generally done, because what is generally done in one region of the country or another may be quite different. Always avoid uh, getting sucked into fact versus opinion situations. Rick, there you go. What do you think? You know, I think that that is all uh, wisdom from an expert, that's for sure. Um, hopefully, your attorney will review many of those kinds of things with you in advance. But remember, if you're a USAC physician, at least, the likelihood of you talking to somebody like that is one in 100,000. One in 100,000 is what the uh, case rate was with this USAC study of almost 10 million cases. It yeah. would be great if somebody else could, you know, show what their experience has been in large groups and vision. Why don't you step up to the plate and tell us what your experience has been? Hey, Greg, before we get to this um, thing where we go into some of the Covery stuff that we started last month, um, I did look at Chuck Pilcher's stuff for this month and um, wanted to see what, up, what was up his sleeve. And he had two cases that I, I'd want to comment on one of them. So one of them was a 19-year-old girl with uh, severe low back pain and uh, some numbness around her pelvis area. And she uh, went to uh, 
the ED and was seen by a nurse practitioner because back pain is generally considered, you know, musculoskeletal. Here's a, here's your emergency around kind of thing. Right. Uh, she was discharged after her first visit without any studies performed and returned two days later with back pain and numbness, but now had some difficulty urin urinating. Yeah. I, I, I mean, as soon as you said difficulty urinating back pain, ah, uh, and now it's a second visit. So yeah. if you don't proceed on that, I, I don't know who you are because well, most case, patients don't, are, are not anatomic experts. They don't know how all this stuff fits together. Well, this is a case where uh, the patient noted this to the nurse. The nurse put that in his or her notes, but it was not in the physician's notes. And it was, got, it was one of those things, well, you never told me you know, about the numbness in your, and the urinary, maybe, maybe you didn't want to tell it to the doctor, but you told it to the nurse. Doctor didn't read what the nurse had written. Bottom line is the outcome was, um, this was a case of, uh, caught Aquinas syndrome yeah. in a 16 year old. Now she had been told in the past that she had some kind of, uh, vertebral abnormalities of sorts, but you know, it was very vague. In any case, this is a great example of uh, a travesty of justice in that chronic leg pain, mild foot weakness, difficulty urinating, chronic constipation, and sexual dysfunction. So she was awarded $535,869. How they come up with these exact amounts is unclear to me for past and future medical care. Non-economic damages was $2 million. But because there was a cap on pain and suffering in this state, that took care of that $2 million. It was interesting what the jury thought was appropriate in this person's case and what the state of uh, whatever it was thought. Because if it had been California, this person would have gotten $250,000 for which you can only buy, you know, basically uh, two Teslas for. Uh, right. Here. <laughs> uh, the other case was interesting only in that it was about the magnitude. So another 16-year-old girl, progressive uh, back pain over a five-month period. Finally, at 11 months, she gets an MRI. Her family was begging the uh, people, please, please, please do this MRI, which was, which was advised at her first visit with a chiropractor months before. Uh, bottom line is she had this uh, um, very huge osteosarcoma, surgery for 22 hours, had part of her pelvis removed, spinal fusion, loss of her right leg and half of her pelvis, five years in litigation, $28 million um, was what this case was about. Now, it didn't, that didn't involve emergency physicians, but it just basically shows how people can brag, be dragged through these things. The first case where they had this person who got, you know, cap on pain and suffering, this is a case where cap and pain and suffering was, I think, unfair. This patient really deserved more. And the, 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 the state in its wisdom said, nah, that's it, 250. Uh, so I think that in some cases, caps on pain and suffering substantially limit fair awards to, to harm patients. Yeah, this, this, uh, these cases show one thing which I think we, we've, from the beginning of doing this in my career, 
it's the patient who is viewed as a repeat visitor uh, and, oh, she's back again. You know, there's one thing in emergency medicine. If they're back again, maybe the people who saw the first time were not correct. What makes you think those were geniuses? And I've just seen so many cases where it went on and on and on, particularly when you get in the middle of a patient who's been seeing their primary care physician, the desire in the emergency department is to get them back to their primary uh, care doc for, for their workup, when in actuality, every time they come in to see you, you're their doctor. And it's perfectly okay to kind of review things and say, you know, maybe we're going to have to check something else out. Both of those cases are classics for that. And I'll tell you, when I when I look back in my rel- relatively large book of business, uh, the number of these cases that go on and on who have been seen by multiple doctors, uh, it it is a problem. When they come in to see you, erase, try and erase what, the, what they've had done, put it through your brain and say, you know, if I was seeing them for the first time, what would my differential be? What would it be? What would I think that it might be? Because, uh, because they've seen other doctors doesn't mean they don't have real disease. And I, I've just seen it too many times. Well, you know, I've mentioned this before, but there have been a number of ca- papers in the primary care literature when a doctor goes on vacation and a new doctor comes in to take the doctor's place and he's seeing patients, uh, they point out that the new doctor often makes the correct diagnosis or additional diagnosis that the other doctor did not make. And uh, the, uh, the idea of a fresh, fresh set of eyes is, uh, even in the emergency department, wouldn't you like to have a fresh set of eyes to see your, your, your more troubling cases? Well, those of us who worked in ERs where we were the only doctor, we also had the... Uh, uh, opportunity to make all the judgments unanimously they were ours only i wanted to make another point this is a we're recording this in the week that 3800 of you are going through your uh, abem recertification exam you poor souls and that also includes i guess um the residents who are basically getting uh, their first exam that they're certifying exam but in any case i i this brings up the point that, so we had our board review course and in our board review course, there is a section on orthopedics and it brings up the thing about low back pain in teenagers, low back pain in adolescents and teenagers is an unusual kind of phenomenon. And we should really take it seriously when a low back pain case in teenagers come in. Uh, Oftentimes they are, uh, teenagers who are involved in gymnastics or uh, other ent- entities that involve hyperextension activities, like a weightlifter does hyperextension when they're lifting the weights overhead. Uh, because what we're supposed to be looking for is the spondylolysis, spondylolisthesis business, and which allows you to take an x ray of a teenager with low back pain that is. Um, there is uh, that is 
troubling you, that you don't think it is, uh, well, they lifted a box, and even even then. So you, the bottom line is, in that lecture, it said, have a low threshold for doing an x-ray in teenagers who are presenting with chronic low back pain because it may be one of these entities, which then you can um, counsel patients with regards to, or their doctor can, with regards to physical activities that may make this entity worse. Um, yep. Now, you know, when I, 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 let me just point out one thing. Whenever you've got a system where there's two doctors working and they've seen you the day before, two days before, there's a thought that, oh, gee, well, you're familiar with them. You should see them. I have exactly the opposite feeling. If there's another set of eyes that can be brought to the situation, if it really was uh, without a diagnosis sort of thing, let the other doctor, the other colleague take a look because we can become, we, we, locked in, we lock ourselves into diagnoses uh, because of the way the patient presents, the way we relate to them, and um, they deserve to have a second opinion sometimes, and that's okay. And I, I, and I wouldn't be upset by that if, uh, if somebody said, you know, maybe the other doctor can give me an opinion. It's okay by me because hopefully they agree, but if they don't, it's only done the patient some good. Hey, uh, Greg, let's do a couple of these, um, these COVID things. Now, last month we mentioned that there was a big-time study out of 1,300 closed emergency department claims by this company I've never heard of called Covery's. Uh, claims were between 2014 and 2018, and we kind of went through some of the overview, but they have, this is a 31-page report. The prior issue basically has the website where you can get and download the entire thing. But as a result of these 1,300 claims, they make a series of recommendations. So I thought we would take a few of these recommendations each time. If you take them all, it's Extraordinarily boring. It's <laughs> it's painful, Rick. It's yeah. very painful. So we're, we're going to take a few and you know add our two cents to these, and they go right from the from the EMS process to the person going out the back door. They they want to look at every step in the exp patient experience. So the first thing they talk about is uh, you know arrival and transport risk management recommendations, uh, ensuring optimal patient transport. They basically, there's a bunch of them. Some of them are very straightforward. Work with the EMS to ensure that they use screening tools during transport. Now you know they have these stroke screening tools that uh, yes. have been validated pretty well. In fact, they were done here at UCLA when they did the uh, slow mag, the uh, fast mag trial, slow mag trial, where they were giving people who had strokes in the field, magnesium, which was an absolute total waste of time. It was the most expensive pre-hospital study ever done. And the only good thing that came out of it was they taught the paramedics how to use a scale to identify people who had strokes as far as I'm concerned. So that that's, I think that there are a variety of these kind of screening tools that pre-hospital people can use. Uh, that may, in this case, direct them to a different hospital or something to that effect. 
they also say in that guard, regard, and last thing I want to mention is developing a protocol to go on diversion. Diversion is a big deal, a big deal. Uh, patients are going to be substantially uh, inconvenienced. Their families are going to be inconvenienced because they're going to not be taken to the closest hospital, but to some other place across town in Japip. Uh, so diversion, um, you can't do that casually. Uh, I think that, yes, you should, should have a diversion protocol because there may be some harm in people being diverted that uh, you can avoid if you, don't, if, you, if you don't have to divert. Here's, here's the problem with diversion. It's become a political and not a medical question. If you're diverting for true medical reasons, if, for example, Rick, you have five hospitals in in Los Angeles that can take you to the uh, cath lab for a stroke and, and, and put the TPA right next to it in your brain or, or suction uh, the stroke out and your hospital, you know you're going to have to transfer the patient then diversion is probably a good thing. That That is a logical reason to divert because we can't handle it. But what's happened is, uh, and I sat on ambulance committees for 25 years, you get into fights about, well, the only reason you diverted this one was uh, because because they uh, you knew they weren't a paying patient or they were this or they were that. Um, you can't, I can't tell you the amount of animosity that used to happen at those, uh, EMS meetings about diversion. Uh, and, and it, those were political questions, not medical questions, because there are perfectly good medical reasons for diversion. Right. I I think that the part I want to emphasize is that there's potential harm associated. Yeah. Some people were diverted from your hospital to another hospital. It's a good idea. But in some cases, because you say you're full and you divert a person to some other place, they may, that may result in some harm to the patient. Yes. So be aware of that. Greg, you want to just do a uh, quickie we'll here? We'll do one, on, one more. Uh, triage. This has to do with triage and risk management recommendations. This is engineering safe and reliable triage um, scales, that sort of thing. Here's the biggest issue we now have. If you're the small hospital in the middle of nowhere, you got to see everybody. And I worked at plenty of those hospitals. It's not as big a deal. If you're in an, in an ER of, of decent size and they've got a fast track and they've got an urgent care and they've got the main ER department, this is where you get foxed. Because you've got to have some way in the triage mechanism of deciding where they can handle and how much time they can wait. Um, triage is not an absolute. And I, I, will, I will say this, understanding there will be some complaints, but it is not for the uninitiated or the faint of heart. Your triage nurses, I think, should have real experience and understand what the capabilities are in the main department, in urgent care, in peds walk-in, that sort of thing. They should be able to walk in and see a kid who's lethargic and six months of age and know that doesn't go to peds walk-in. That goes 
to a place where somebody's going to move with some dispatch to stick a needle in the kid's back and start the IV and get the antibiotics going. Uh, this is a reliable triage is absolutely essential. I, I can't tell you the number of cases I've seen where 46-year-old men with indigestion uh, were allowed to sit for, for four hours waiting to see the urgent care. And of course, what they had was an MI. And I, I think we need, to, we need to have people at triage who have some experience in emergency department. This is not the good job for somebody who two months ago just graduated from nursing school and are waiting to take their nursing exam. Well, Covey's is very specific. They're talking about a lot of emergency departments. So they say, and this is obvious, triage must not be delegated to anyone who has not completed required training and competency and valuation in it. This is not, uh, you know, on the job training. This is, you got to get specific training on this. And they say you need to have every year your competency reevaluated. They also talk about uh, reassessing people in the waiting room and do so at intervals appropriate for their symptoms and conditions that, uh, and that makes a lot of sense. It's like once you go back out into the waiting room after you've seen the triage nurse, you can wallow there because you're going to be there for X hours at some of these ridiculous, particularly these municipal hospitals where they're just overwhelmed. You, you know, you're going to be in the, in the waiting room for a long time despite the fact that you've seen a quote-unquote triage nurse. So this is professional business, competency uh, training, competency, and and periodic reevaluations. Because and, if you make a mistake in triage, from a lawsuit point of view, they're going to say, "What is the training of this person? What is the competency of this person? Have they been reevaluated?" And all of those things, if they don't exist, they're going to attack your triage process. And they want the triage process to have some base, a tool, yeah. a, a some list that says, if you've got this complaint, you're going to be bumped up to this department or that level or this waiting. Uh, so it's just not an eyeball sort of uh, situation. Oh, no, is, they want you to use an evidence-based triage classification tool. They want, you, they want to make the case that your triage is as reasonable as possibly it can be by doing these things so that they don't get into trouble. This is all about the money. All right, Greg, we'll stop here. You have a wine. I can see you holding the bottle. Perducci. Yes. It's an yeah, Italian Parducci. guy, I hope. Well, actually. Mr. Parducci. This is French, uh, but so they pronounce it differently. You know, I'm sure they talk through their nose, and so it's a Parducci. But it's, uh, it's a great, by the way, Pinot Noir, um, this, this one is, uh, is actually made in Mendocino County, uh, and it is absolutely excellent. What are you, um, what are you talking about? French and Mendocino yeah, well, County? Well, how, they, how's that they, work? They here, think doc doctor? I don't know. But, uh, in any event, it, it is a Pinot Noir, which, which comes from Mendocino County, uh, it's uh, this is the 2015, which uh, it is now just about where it ought to be to drink. And I would uh, P-A-R-D-U-C-C-I. And it is absolutely fabulous. And this will run you about fourteen dollars a bottle. 
excellent, excellent wine at a very reasonable price. Well, just by the fact that you're holding the bottle in your hand it gives me the sense that you have had firsthand experience at this. <laughs> you know, you're, Rick, just, you're just not reading out of Parker's uh, recommendations here. This is just like the information we give on depositions. We've been through it. <laughs> and uh, so this, this comes with a strong uh, Greg and Margene Henry recommendation. There you go. Okay, that's the uh, September 2019 issue of Risk Management Monthly. We hope to see you at the um, ASEP meeting. Greg and I will be there, you know, wandering around aimlessly kind of thing. Uh, if you see us, stop by and say hello. Uh, anything else, Greg? No, I, 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 think that, uh, I think that it's important that we, as part of the, the family of, of uh, emergency medicine abstracts and all the products that we've got, uh, that we did pay our respects uh, to your uh, lovely sister. Uh, but we're going to continue on. It does not change the way we're, we're doing, and uh, she wouldn't want it any other way, Rick. Well, this makes it harder because now I have to summarize all this crap that we just, we just <laughs> went through for the last hour and a half. All right. So, all right. See you. Bye for now. Bye.